Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson, the podcast where she speaks to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about why they connect with nature. Professor Emeritus Gordon Walker studies leisure, and one of his focal points is this question. Is nature needed as a basic psychological need? Gordon has his Master of Science in Leisure Studies and PhD in Forestry in Natural Resource Recreation. He's published over 90 refereed research articles and co-authored or co-edited three books, including A Social Psychology of Leisure. Much of this work involved individuals living in East Asia, as well as those who emigrated from this area to North America. He loves being outside and being on the water on his canoe. I'm excited to dive into more of the psychological side of connecting with nature. Please enjoy my chat with Gordon Walker. Gordon, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me on Let's Take This Outside. Thank you very much. I'm really excited for this as we're going to dive more into the research behind why we connect with nature, also based on our social factors, but would love to start by finding out more about, about you because we, we've never met. We don't know much about each other other than like our bios and some short conversations we've had. So where did your interest in what you study is leisure and the outdoors come from for you? I had a, I call it my gap decade. I went off to university and uh, I had a wonderful time and failed miserably and ended up taking almost 10 years to work and travel and try to figure out what I wanted to do. And so during that time, I started traveling. And so at one point amongst various travels, I ended up in New Zealand and uh, somebody was coming back to the youth hostel and they had just hiked the Abel Tasman Tramp track, as New Zealanders call it. And so I sat down with him and I thought, wow, this sounds really cool. So I went off kind of, you know, unprepared, but excited. And I hiked the Abel Tasman in New Zealand and I had an incredible time, just amazing. And then about two weeks later, I hiked the Root Burn. And then after that, Milford Sound. So these are all the, what's called the great hikes of New Zealand. And I was hooked. I just, I love being in nature. I love the backpacking. I love more where it would take me to be honest, than the backpacking itself. Putting 40 pounds on your back is just not fun. And so I, I decided I had a love of nature. You decided or it just came supernatural? Yeah, yeah. supernatural. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to start with that is my family did not camp. I don't remember ever being to a national park. I mean, one of the things we know from the research is you almost have to be socialized into outdoor recreation and a love of nature and a, a desire to go to national parks. In my case, it came up when I was in my 20s. It suddenly hit me. I discovered it and it became sort of a lifelong passion. I mean, there were some dead ends. I lived in Saskatchewan and I started rock climbing, but it's nine hours to get to the mountains. And of course, there was no climbing walls at that time. So that was a dead end. But I, I guess, found myself after that decade and uh, went back to university, studied sport and recreation management. And one of the one of the activities I had to learn was an outdoor activity. And so I picked up canoeing. And that to me has become my passion. I've moved from backpacking to canoeing. And I've canoed for on-roads of 30 years, a number of wilderness trips. It's kind of it's where my, my center is. 
And you'll probably hear more about canoeing in this interview than you thought, but it's a way for me to make sense of, of some of the theory that's out there is applying it to, to what I've done, especially in terms of canoeing. My first interview that kicked off this podcast was with Adam Schultz. Have you met him? Do you know Adam? I have read his books. He's a very interesting guy. And I'll, I'll probably refer back because I guess the other part of this is reading his books and some other books related to outdoor recreation and climbing and nature. I think they're good ways of explaining why we do when we get into nature. I guess the one thing I'll add here is, is so how did it go from you know the passion for the outdoors to, to being a, an academic who studies leisure and outdoor leisure for 20, 25 years? And I finished up my undergraduate. I went down to Arizona State and I was taking, again, recreation and sport management. And I had a class with a professor and I'm going to give a shout out, Maria Allison. And she taught a graduate course on, I think it was the sociology and psychology of leisure. And it blew my mind. It was like going from how to plan, implement, evaluate programs and facilities, which is what I had been doing and I loved, to why do people even do leisure? I mean, what motivates them? What constrains them or stops them? What kind of experiences do they have? And what do they get out of it, I guess, in terms of things like quality of life? But the other part of that, there was a, another professor, Randy Verdon, who taught a course on outdoor recreation. And there was a, a great paper that came out, Rick Knopf, who was at Arizona State. And the story goes that he got a sabbatical and he spent like six months collecting huge amounts of data and research. And he sat down and he came up with these, he called them various things. The goals that we have for why we do nature-based leisure needs, he called it sometimes. The one I like the best, though, is he came up with these four or five, he called them quests. And these quests help explain why we are so enthralled by doing leisure in nature, in wilderness, in parks, and that sort of thing. I'm really excited to dive into this because, you know, sometimes I can put into words how being in nature and exercising in nature makes me feel, but it's one of those things that you just have to experience and you're like, oh, now I get it. So I'm looking forward to diving into like maybe actually putting words to it and where it comes from on a mental and like psychological side of things. So one of the topics that you research is fascinating. And I feel like this is a very big question. Is nature needed as a basic psychological need? Okay, well, I'm going to just go back one step. Because again, you know, I've already I've talked about Knopf already, but he had four or five different, and I'll call them needs, because that's when I first heard the word, was when he talked about needs for nature. And so he had four or five. And one is competence. And we talked a little bit earlier, and you mentioned that you did some rock climbing. So I mean, there's a great activity that we go out, and I still think it's different, you know, when you go out into nature at a cliff or wherever versus on a climbing wall. And we want to test our competence. You want to test it when you go rock climbing, I want to test it when I go canoeing. I mean, it's just one of those things where we want to see what we're capable of. And we'll come back to this, I hope, in terms of a relatively safe manner. We don't want to take too many big risks. So that was one. One was this idea of, of he called it a quest for tranquility. And it, there was two parts to this. One was the idea of we go out to nature to escape from and you can think about this now. We want to escape from our problems. We want to escape from work. Geez, right now we want to escape from COVID still. And so part of it was if we want to escape from those things where we can push them to the back of our mind. The other part, though, is there is just something about natural settings that is calming, that leads to a sense of tranquility. So we've got tranquility. We've got competence. 
related to that one is this idea of natural stimulation. You know, there's some evolutionary perspectives out there that there are just parts of nature that we we inherently find calming. And so this is when, you know, something like forest bathing in Japan comes up. And the last one that uh, Knopf talked about was social affirmation. And so it's not only that we want to go typically with our friends and our family or significant others, but that also kind of reinforces our values. And so these are people who, you know, understand us and we think along the same lines and that sort of thing. So those are the four needs that he came up with. And some of those get reflected in some of the more recent psychology. So a couple of uh, psychologists named DC and Ryan have spent probably close to 50 years trying to understand basic needs. And the two that they started with was this idea of one was competence, makes sense. And we see that played out in, in outdoor recreation and leisure generally. Another one was they called it autonomy. And it's this idea that we want our goals, our activities, our behaviors to be self-endorsed. We want to believe in what we're doing. We want to buy into it. And that typically comes out of, you know, we choose what we want to do. And, and let's be honest, there's more choice in people's leisure than the work to make. But the third one that came along and part of it came along. And again, the social part of it came in. It was a guy named Baumeister and Leary. And, and their idea was they wrote this incredibly beautiful review on why belonging. That was the term they used. Why is there is a need for belonging? And it's the idea of we have this inherent psychological need to have close connections with others, to be with people who we trust and they trust us, people who understand us. So from there, one of the great things about Baumeister and Leary's article was they did something that pretty well hadn't been done before in the psych literature. And that was they came up with criteria. So what is a need? And if you think about now, I'm going to assume almost everybody has heard about Maslow and Maslow's theory and Maslow's hierarchy. And one of the things was, is he kind of put this together, you know, uh, as a think piece. He didn't actually have criteria for what is a need and that sort of thing. But Baumeister and Leary did. And so just to give you an idea here, and I've got to refer to my notes here so I get it right. I mean, he said, we have a, an emotional response with needs. They have effective consequences. So when they're satisfied, we feel good, for example. There's cognitive, there's a cognitive aspect to it. So we think differently, perhaps, or better once our needs are satisfied. So just coming back to nature, just a couple about this. One of the things that we found, for example, as I've mentioned, is less anxiety when we go off into nature. So that if being in nature is a need, then you would expect less anxiety, less stress, and that seems to be reflected in the literature. One of the interesting ones for me is we seem to think better after we've been in nature. And so psychologists do these things where they give you puzzles, you know, before you go into nature and go backpacking or go into a park. And we think, seem to think better and maybe even more creatively. One of the interesting ones is what happens if a need isn't satisfied? This is one of the criteria. And we can think about this back to belonging. And we know how detrimental loneliness is because we know that from Alzheimer's studies, for example, or I'm not sure they still have it, but they actually had a, a ministry of loneliness in the UK cabinet, because this was such a concern in the UK in terms of people being lonely and the health consequences. But with nature, I mean, one of the first studies, it was post-operative surgery, and they would have people who would be assigned to rooms, some with a view not unlike the one I'm sitting and looking out at of nature, and another of essentially a brick wall. And what they found is people who had views out their hospital window of nature recovered quicker. They were released earlier. 
And the only difference was, and you know, you're randomly assigned to rooms, is because of the nature view. So if you don't have that nature view, and this comes up in prison studies as well, is you may be more likely to get sick or not recover as quickly. Two other ones quickly. One is it should be universal. So if, if nature is a need, we should see this in other countries and other cultures. And probably the one that's been most studied, again, is places like China and Japan and Korea in terms of Shinrin Yoku, forest bathing. And there's a ton of literature out there on that. And the last one is beyond the psychological functioning aspect, there should be implications. And we know from numerous studies, in fact, there was a great review that just came out of 150 research articles that being in nature seems to have a positive effect on all kinds of things. So there's long-term consequences to this need being satisfied. And uh, Twig, Bennett, and Jones, I'll just, self-reported health was better. Type 2 diabetes was better. I love this one. Mortality was reduced. Blood pressure was better. Uh, Cortisol, which is, you know, stress-related. Heart rate, cholesterol. And so that's what they found in this review of almost 150 papers. There's long-term consequences to being in, in nature settings. So... That was the case we made, myself and one of my colleagues and and former students, Jane Hurley. She was the lead on this, so she really drove it. It was sort of my idea, but she did the research, and we made the case. What was interesting, though, was two psychologists, Barnett and Pelche, they came up with the same idea at the same time. Our papers came out within, I think, about two months of each other. They took very much a psychological perspective where we took an outdoor recreation, uh, leisure perspective. And so our ideas converged and we we're both making the same case, which is pretty cool. Very different perspectives, but we came to the same conclusion that maybe nature is a basic need like autonomy, like belonging, like competence. There's so much of that, that I'm like, yes, yeah. Like that was like, I was ticking boxes in my head as you were talking about it. But I, I want to actually ask about you're talking about like the social affirmation aspect of it. And it's funny because we're going to try to, a couple of friends and I are going to try to go for uh, an outdoor rock climb tomorrow morning, depending on the weather. And it, it's some of the people closest to me, we've had the coolest experiences outside. And I completely validate that. However, there is something about being na- in nature alone that I find incredibly thrilling. And th- is, is that because it's like checking all the other boxes still? Like, what is that need about being human and being alone in nature and doing epic things by yourself? Oh, man, I'm I'm writing down words here. We've got epic and we've got experiences. And (laughs) there's a couple things here. One is a lot of the early research, and they still talk about this, is an evolutionary perspective. And so, for example, if we, we just kind of take out, you know, the rock climbing aspect and just being in nature. Depending on how far you date us back as a species, we go back 3 million years. It's only in the last, what, 10 or 15,000 years agriculture has been around. So from an evolutionary perspective, well, it sort of makes sense. They do uh, photo preference studies and, and the preference that we have in terms of when we show photos of various environments to uh, students, for example, and have them rate one. The one that comes up usually the highest is savannah. And if you think about how long we were in Africa as a species, sort of makes sense. Another aspect that comes up here, uh, Kaplan and Kaplan came up with the ideas, if we're just in nature, they say our focus of attention changes. They talk about something called soft fascination. And if you think about this in terms of a babbling brook, you know, that, that smooth, tranquil sound of water running over rocks or leaves shimmering in the sunlight, you know, that dappled effect. 
these are things that, that are inherent in nature that seem to calm us down, to give us a sense of peace. And those are things that, again, we've been exposed to for potentially millions of years. So that's another aspect, I think, in just in terms of what, what nature provides. But for something like competence, then we start adding in activities. We want to test ourselves. You know, that's kind of the achievement aspect as well. The other part is going back to your thing about social affirmation. I can't remember where it was, but, you know, I've heard climbers talk about, you know, when they're going off in major expeditions. They say, we can find a lot of people that are competent, highly competent, easily capable of going up the mountain with us and, and we would be safe. But then you think, if we get snowed in, we got to spend three or four days with this person in a tent. You want somebody you're going to be able to survive with when you're alone with them. In terms of the climbing, you know, the capabilities, that's different. But you want people... Yes, you don't kill each other, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, geez, it's almost like COVID again, right? I mean, we're all locked up together. and You want to test the relationship? You stay inside with your partner for a week. I'm told. I'm told. The other part you mentioned, so I'm going to play off you a little bit here, is those are the needs. In terms of motivations, you know, the big one is in, it's intrinsic. And that means it's interesting and enjoyable and done for its own sake. And that's, that's one of the predominant things about leisure. It's one of those things that maybe differentiates it from too many people's work. But the other part is the experiences we have. And so this is the ongoing thing that's happening. You're talking about going out tomorrow rock climbing. And so have you ever heard of flow experiences? Flow experience. Is anything like, I might be wrong, but like flow state that you're in, like a flow state, like when you're... Exactly. Exactly. So a guy named Chiksane Mahali back in the 70s is looking at the experiences that, for example, rock climbers report, but he also finds it with chess players and even surgeons. And so there's some conditions here that typically come up. You're going rock climbing tomorrow. Okay, you got a clear goal. You got two clear goals. One's to get to the top and one's not to fall. Makes sense. And to have fun. And to have fun is number three. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the, yeah, that's coming up. You're getting immediate feedback on how well you're doing, right? You know if, if you, when you put up your hand and you hit a, a spot, whether it's going to hold or not. Is that going to work or not? How am I moving? So you're getting that. You're focused. You're, you know, the great thing about a rock cliff is it's right in front of you. It dominates your view. Now, somebody, you know, if you're at a cliff by a roadside and people are driving by and hitting their horn because they see you, you're probably going to get distracted. And, and that can stop a flow experience from happening. But the really big one that Chick St. Mahai talked about is, we were looking for this balance between what the challenge presents and our skill level. So when you go out tomorrow, you're going to find or you're going to try to find a climb that's just above your usual skill level if you're looking for flow. Great thing about climbing, I don't, I don't know what you climb at, but there's a system in place, right, to rate climbs. So if you're a, I'm going to assume you're a 5.10 climber. Sure, I'm a 5.10. Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> Come on, go with me here. You're a 5'10 climber. You go through the, the guide and you find a 5'10 B climb, just a little bit above. You've got the skill, but you're going to test it, but not too much. If you're climbing with a friend who doesn't climb that well, you know, it's going to be kind of boring, right? If you go in and the guidebook's wrong and it's a 5.14, you're going to be anxious. I mean, you, it's, it's, it not, doesn't match up. But if these conditions are in place, especially that skill and challenge above a certain point, and again, something like climbing, you can find the right climb because of the ratings. If that happens, a couple of things may occur. Maybe more are likely to occur according to Chick St. Mayelli. For example, one of the things is you're incredibly focused. It's incredibly enjoyable. 
you lose track of yourself. You're not thinking about yourself. How am I doing? Geez, these shorts look really good on me, those sort of things. And the other thing is you lose track of time. And so, you know, I was thinking about this. I didn't climb that long, but I remember having an incredible climb. I was leading probably at the edge of my skill level and I finished up, got to the top of the pitch and somebody told me I'd been climbing for an hour. I just completely lost track of time. And that's one of the things that happens. And so with a flow experience, it is incredibly amazing to have that experience when you're climbing, for example, or canoeing or doing other activities. Chick St. Mahai would say two things. One is we feel so good. You're talking about fun, but we feel so good after a flow experience. And he even said in extreme examples, these become benchmarks. And he said, what happens sometimes is when we have a, a intense flow experience is it becomes a benchmark for the rest of our lives. And we may look around and go, man, I don't get this in my job. I don't get this in other aspects of my leisure. And that's where rock climbing perhaps becomes a focus in terms of your life. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson. I find it's the things that when it comes to that flow state, it's the things that take a lot of concentration. Something I love about, I'm very new to rock climbing. It's only been a couple of years off and on, but uh, and it's not something I do a lot. It's more I do with uh, a friend who's very experienced, but it's something that I enjoy every single time because again, I push myself every single time, but it's different than say hiking. It's different than cycling. It's different than these like high paced, high adrenaline sport. It's very like focused. It's like, it's very easy to go in the flow state because you don't have any other choice, but because you have to, you should be staying on the wall, right? The point is that every, every time you put your fingers on the wall and your feet and you're pushing up and you're, it's like a puzzle that you're figuring out. So I like that it's a very different flow than say you're, you're cycling and you're bombing it down a hill going 80 kilometers an hour, right? That's also a flow, but a very different experience. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons climbing is so popular is because your vision is dominated by being a foot away from a cliff. So Chiksehen Mahai actually made a comment one time that he said, sometimes I wonder if, if we haven't developed certain activities or even games so that we can flow. And so, you know, rock climbing is one of those ones that has all of those those things that he talked about. As long as you don't get distracted. You know, if there's people climbing uh, the pitch next to you, maybe that can throw you off and they're yelling uh, or traffic. So that's a, that's a big concern. But you're right. I mean, there's, there's something, and I think that differentiates that and from something like, like you. I, I love to cycle, but it's different. And that's one thing is if you're a competitive cyclist, 
You probably flow. You know what you need to do, all of those sort of things. But it's different than what most of us do. And so that's one of the things about nature-based activities. A lot of things are provided for us in terms of, you know, those needs that I talked about. Some would be, you know, more if you're climbing with somebody or hiking with somebody. It's different than if you're doing those things solo. And so you have to realize that a lot of things may be provided, but it may vary by the activity. It may be vary by the person. And another time, you know, you may want to go rock climbing and it's just for the social aspect. So it's, it's wonderful because it's so variable in terms of the activities and what we get and the experiences we have and the needs that are satisfied. I really want to talk about the social factors part of this and how it affects our connection to nature. So we're talking about gender, ethnicity, race, culture, social class, etc., and how it affects our connection to nature. Because first of all, it's, it's, in, it's in your research, so I'm really interested in this, but also there's so many sports that are dominated by affluent white people. And I feel like social media has been really helpful with this, but making sure that we're helping people feel more welcome, people of color, different genders, just like just making everyone feel welcome in the outdoors. Cause I, I still feel like maybe we're not doing a great job at that. <laughs> I feel like we're not where we, where we should be, but I would love your thoughts on that. And obviously there's a longer answer to that. Yeah. It, I was lucky. I guess I had a, a number of incredible foreign students primarily from China and Japan. And so one of the things we would talk about, for example, one of the things we would do research on is, you know, how leisure is similar and different in other cultures. And I, I always like to think of it, and you need both of those terms, because there are similarities and there are differences. In terms of nature-based leisure, you know, it's, it's sort of the same thing. And that kind of led to us, for example, looking at things like, okay, gender differences that we would have to incorporate and those sort of things. And, you know, honestly, your comment, the very first paper I ever wrote, I was still a, a grad student in the States. It was about uh, social class and going into wilderness areas, outdoor recreation, because I think part of it is, yes, there's more affluent people, more educated people are the ones that are more likely to use especially backcountry sites and that sort of thing. But Richard Florida, you might remember, he wrote about the creative class and, and that sort of thing is, in some ways, historically, it was the creative class people that developed the idea of wilderness, what wilderness is, and determined what was going to be acceptable behavior in the outdoors. And so going back to that, I mean, there is a class aspect in terms of how we look at nature and, and what parks and wilderness areas have become. There was a phenomenal book back in the 1960s by a guy named Roderick Nash called The Idea of Wilderness, and it focused primarily on the U.S., but it is an idea, and nature is an idea. And for some of us that have been more privileged, and I'd put professors in there, sometimes it seems that we can dominate the conversation. Now, I say that, and at the same time, I'll flip to the other side, and is I've done some part work with Parks Canada, and one of the reasons I got interested in looking at Chinese in particular or East Asians was uh, Elk Island is a, a great urban park about 30 minutes outside Edmonton where I live. And it was in the early 2000s, and uh, I was talking to a park warden, and he said, we know the visitors who are coming here are changing. We can see that. They're visible minority group members. And Edmonton's a pretty diverse place. About one in five people is a, a visible minority. He said, we can see this change. But we're not sure how to react. I mean, they had done some good things. They had like big group picnic tables because a lot of Asian people that would come would become in extended families, extended groups and that sort of thing. 
They'd also learned, for example, that, you know, having a park warden in his full outfit walk up was intimidating to people that came from other authoritarian cultures, because to see somebody like a policeman or a military, that's a pretty scary thing in certain countries. So parks, even then, back in, in around 2000, national parks, was starting to see trends. And I will say I've been really impressed what they've done. I went to their website. You know, new Canadians get a free park pass for their first year. There's a number of videos online in terms of how to make a campfire and that sort of thing. So I've been impressed what Parks Canada has done. And of course, the relationship with Indigenous people in terms of development of parks. You know, Banff was our first national park. You know, essentially the, the land was stolen from Indigenous people and they were banned from coming to do traditional activities. So we've gone from that to, I think, a better relationship, a much better relationship when I look at national parks. Having said all that, getting back to some of the things you talked about, I mean, one of the concerns, one of the big concerns if we're looking at gender is, for example, violence against women. And it has happened in parks. It's a concern. We know that in general, there was a a great paper that came out a few years ago, and it was looking at uh, hikers, solo hikers. I don't know if you've ever solo hiked or not. Yeah, a a lot of my hiking is solo, so I'm interested to see where this is going. Perfect. Okay. Well, there was a couple things. And they interviewed men and women and, and found that women were in general more fearful when they're hiking or, or contemplating hiking solo. And some of the fear was uh, about, you know, wild animals getting lost, those sort of things that you kind of understand. But the number one fear was in terms of attack by a man more than anything else. I confirm that completely. Yeah. And so, you know, it's one of those, we would call it in my field, a constraint. Because now we're saying the perception is I may not be safe in this place that may limit what you do. And so, for example, some women talked about only hiking in areas that they knew well. So it kind of constrained where they would go. Others talked about always having a dog with them in terms of that, gave them that sense of protection. So it's not that nature may be different, but our interaction with nature may be different. And again, gender with especially violence against women is definitely a concern. A lot of my friends and colleagues at this age, I'm finding we're making that transition from you know the back country to the front country and buying trailers. RV sales have just gone nuts in parts because of COVID. But they're looking, again, at my female family and friends are looking for vans because they say, if I'm in a trailer, I'm stuck. But in a van, I get out of bed, I go up to the front, I drive away. And it's a safety issue. And so it's like, that's the kind of thing that you can see in terms of a constraint. Now, again, some of the women talked about how they negotiated these things, taking a dog with them, you know, having the the bear spray handy, that sort of thing, how they interacted when they came across, you know, a single male might say hi, that sort of thing, or a group, they might even step off the trail. So that's the kind of thing that, especially again, violence against women. Do you mind if I quickly share a bit of a story? (laughs) Please. So I've never, I just want to say off the bat that I've never had any scary experience, but there are experiences that are uncomfortable. I remember I was hiking the Adirondacks and luckily I was probably in the last probably 5k of the trip, but like the Adirondacks can get pretty, sometimes you don't see people for, for hours, <laughs> sometimes depending on the weekend or what time you're going. And I remember I, I saw this gentleman and I'm very friendly. I say hi to everyone, say hi. And he's asking where you're like, and usually you have that small talk and then the, the chat kept going. I'm being really friendly. And then he's like, why don't we exchange numbers? And I'm getting hit on right on the trail. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know, and I've, I've heard exactly that experience, getting hit on. 
and I didn't feel threatened by any means, but it was uncomfortable, right? It wasn't, uh, it was, yeah, it wasn't a, wasn't a great experience, but I don't want to diminish any kind of bad or violent experiences women have had. But those are some things, right, that we think about. And honestly, so I carry, um, not all the time, but I, I sometimes carry a knife with me. And yeah, sure, maybe, maybe for animals, but I, I don't know if that sounds aggressive or not. But uh, sometimes I do. Yeah, just, just for the, I don't know why it makes me feel safer, but but it does. Bear spray is also a good idea, too. I hope I never have to use it. <laughs> I love the term uncomfortable because it, it reminded me of there was a paper by an African-American scholar. And there's a limited amount of research in Canada. Not surprisingly, there's more universities in the States and, you know, the population's nine times more. So a lot of the research comes out of the U.S. and we have to say, does this apply or not? But there's a paper by an African-American scholar, and he talked about when he talked to African-Americans, Blacks, that were going to parks, local parks, national parks, that sort of thing. He used the term, instead of uncomfortable, they just felt unwelcome. And so that was enough to affect their experience. And whether it's real or not doesn't matter. The perception was there that uh, this was not a place for African-Americans to go. And Outside Magazine, if you've ever read Outside Magazine, there was an African-American backpacker, and he talked about this, and he said, one of the reasons that you may be more likely, and again, this is the state, so you're going to say, how much of this can we extrapolate to Canada? You may not see a lot of people like me in the backcountry, is historically, you know, in terms of slavery, that is where people escape to, through the woods, to trying to get to Canada or safety or wherever. If you got caught, all kinds of bad things happened. And so, you know, historically, woods, forested areas, natural areas were not something that were good for people like me, as I said, as a black outdoor recreationist. And so that can carry over. Again, I talked about being socialized into outdoors or discovering outdoors. But that was one of the things that came up. Before I forget, because I'm looking at my notes here is there is a, you know, I talk about these reviews. You see one research paper and it goes, hmm, that's interesting, but there's, you know, we always write, here are the limitations, more research is needed because it, it's very specific. And what you try to do is find these reviews that, that look at multiple articles and maybe even get the data from the researchers. But there's one I came across, uh, Shipley and, and colleagues recently looked at parks and other green spaces. And when they looked at all the literature, they found these places, and I'm looking out of my window at one here in Edmonton, often reduce crime because they've been designed, you know, for safety in terms of more lighting, open spaces. People value having parks nearby and they value national parks. And so that means they're more likely to not tolerate certain activities that threaten others, that threaten their safety. And so parks can actually contribute, if they're designed right, if they're managed right, to be safe places for people to go. And maybe people can be more welcome there. So it's one of those things. So I'll go to culture here. I was just looking at this, and it was a paper that I, I wrote with a, one of my grad students, one of the first ones I co-supervised named Jin Yang Deng. And he had come from China. He had done research on parks in China. And so we were curious about Chinese in Canada versus Anglo-Canadian. So those that said they're Canadian or English, Irish, British, whatever, and about their attitudes. And one of the things that came up, there was a lot of similarities, but one of the differences was consumption, for example. And so in China, it was much more common for people to go out and pick uh, berries and mushrooms and that sort of thing in the parks. But the attitude was that that wasn't necessarily appropriate in national parks in Canada. 
Euro Canadians rated that much lower. And I think part of it comes back to the, the leave no trace. You know, we're supposed to go in and take photos and only take photos and then leave. So this is the one of the things that came up. And as I said, I started off at Elk Island National Park. And I remember talking to one of the rangers there and, and he said, not only do are we finding changes in who's coming here, but we're also trying to understand why, because they had an, an experience where somebody was, we have, you know, the little ground squirrels that, that are everywhere. It was a visible minority group member who had seen the ground squirrels, caught the ground squirrel, skinned the ground squirrel, and was cooking the ground squirrel. Because from his culture, that would be appropriate. However, we don't allow that in national parks in Canada. And so there had to be this discussion about what was appropriate behavior. And so this is one of the things that can come up in terms of using spaces. And it, it's kind of an extreme example, but we do have to adjust because we have to remember people who in the, you know, the population of immigrants in Canada, again, it's I think about one in five, people are coming from a different backgrounds in terms of how they relate to nature, in terms of what's appropriate in natural settings, in terms of what preferences are. The other one I'll mention there, and this was I I was lucky because I spent a fair amount of time in China and Japan. I was able to teach short courses in both, and I loved it there. And part of it was just learning about those cultures, especially with China, for example, because of the number of people who came from China and continue to come from China as immigrants. So it it helped me make sense of Chinese Canadians' experience, especially recent Chinese Canadian immigrants. And when I screwed up, my grad students would tell me why and and how this played out. But I I was in a forest park. And there's three of us, three professors walking down the road. One's an American, myself, a Canadian, and a Chinese professor. It sounds like a beginning of a joke. (laughs) It does. That's why I love telling it. We're walking through this forest park and the American says, so in your culture, just briefly, what's important? Is there a word or phrase that sums up what matters to you, what's valuable in your culture? And there was a pause from the two of us. And then the American said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I thought, okay. And I'm sitting there and I'm trying to think of what would be the Canadian response to that. And before I can say, the Chinese professor says very quietly, calm, because of Buddhism, because of Taoism, because of, of centuries of uh, you know foreign invaders, calm is a very important aspect. And it was like, wow. About three months later, I come back and there's a American professor, Jeannie Tsai, T-S-A-I, And she comes out with this paper and she says two things that were really important from my perspective. One is that she said, we spent all this time looking at how people feel, how people feel. How do you feel now? Are you satisfied? Are you bored? Are you excited? Are you relaxed? What, you know, and they report this. And she said, but really what we should think about is ideal effect. How do you want to feel? That's part of her theory. And she said, related to that is the thing about, and she cited a whole bunch of leisure activities is, We seem to use this thing called leisure as a way to change how we feel to what we ideally want to feel. That's part of it. The second part, though, is she said, in different cultures, what's ideal is different. In North America, she said, you know, we we want to be happy, but we want to be excited and these sort of things. In Asian culture, especially Chinese or Japanese, it's more relaxed peaceful and calm. And so going from that, I mean, one of the things that we looked at is, and these are tendencies, let's remember that. Probably we're more inclined, you know, as people, you know, Euro Canadians who've been here for generations, we want some excitement in our life. That's, that's the kind of emotion ideally we like to feel. And so we do things like, say, go rock climbing tomorrow because there's some excitement there. But if you're seeking calm, and again, this is a tendency, 
and that's your ideal preferred effective state. You know, looking at the scenery, for example, which has always been highly rated in, in terms of Chinese culture, would be more appealing. So it might be a more passive activity, a more often maybe even uh, solitary activity. And so that was one of the things that we started looking at in terms of leisure and nature-based leisure is how these things might play out in terms of, for example, here we're talking about culture. It's an interesting one because, and again, I'm going to reinforce this, it's a tendency. I've already said that tranquility is highly valued in the West, in part maybe because our, early, our regular non-leisure lives are not tranquil. Just thinking of the commute, going to work every day. On the other hand, and I'll say this, one of the most wild experience I ever had was with the same group of professors later that night when we left the forest park and went to a karaoke bar. And at least the parts I remember were wild. It was their time to be with that group of friends and colleagues and just be themselves. And I remember turning to one of my students, Jin Yang Dang, and I said, I didn't know you had such a wonderful voice. I mean, you just... You're a brilliant singer. And Jin Yang said, how would you ever know? Our experience has always been in terms of professor-student. In that kind of environment, he could be free. He could be authentic. He could be himself. He could do what he loved. So again, these are tendencies, but there may be more of a tendency for more passive activities, calm, peaceful, tranquil, because it's part of Chinese culture and valued where we're more likely, you know, we, we get to the national park and we start going through the activities and, oh, they have whitewater rafting, that sort of thing. So the last one I'll mention, though, is in terms of culture, I talked about the evolutionary aspect of being in nature. And one of the things that we need is water. And there seems to be this, because water is so important, you know, you think about it, I think of a group of seven photos or paintings, and you know, how many of them have water in it? It's just something in our culture that we love. I have a painting and a photograph of uh, Jasper National Park. I'm looking at both as I do this interview, both have water in them. And I remember talking about this to a, a group of students and one of the students was African and I was, you know, talking uh, about water and it's important and, and it's part of nature and we love this because, it, and the African student said, whoa, wait a minute. And he had come from sub-Sahara Africa and he said, when we go down to the water, we need water. We have to have it for cooking and we have to have it for drinking. When we go down, well, first... We have to watch for elephants because they may get upset. And then we have the crocodiles. And then let's not forget about the hippos. And it was like, well, yeah, that comes into it too. It's We see it as evolutionary, but that works for us generally. But in terms of other cultures, there are other aspects here. And it happened, I was lucky, about three years later, I got to canoe on the Zambezi. It was a couple nights trip. And we're keeping far away from the hippos. They're on the shoreline. A group of hippos is called a bloat. So the bloat of hippos is on the shoreline and we're canoeing along and the, the guide is in the canoe next to us and we're looking at the hippos. And I said to the guide, have you ever had a problem with hippos? And he said, yeah, we actually had a hippo that came up of the water and bit his canoe in half. I was about to ask, I was about to say, so what did you do? And before I could get it out, this solo hippo about 15 feet away comes up out of the water, jaw a gap. And I'll tell you, I've never canoed as fast as that. And I don't know why we canoed fast, because you're not going to, you know, outrun or out canoe or out paddle a hippo. But what went through my mind was, boy, that African grad student, was he ever right? Yeah, it's a different reality. It's a different reality. 
it's a different reality. And you have to take those cultural aspects into play when you're talking about nature and outdoor recreation, because the experience that we have here, if we don't look around the world, Asia in terms of things like forest bathing or Africa in terms of the everyday reality is we can kind of get locked into a a perspective. This is the same everywhere. There's similarities and differences. And that was the one thing I think I always try to teach my student when we're looking at these sort of things. I have one more question here because I've been like writing as we're as we're chatting just because there's so many great little nuggets. I'm like, we're going to need like eight podcasts to cover everything that I want to cover. But I would love to know if you're trying to encourage others to get outside, especially people who may not usually be able to or may not have the finances to do so, or as we were talking about uh, difference in gender, ethnicity, race, culture, social class, what have you learned from your research that we can encourage others and be more welcoming to do so? Wow, there's a tough question. I did do some some work. I, I, again, a lot of my research was in national parks. So we would go back and present our findings and we would talk about various things. It was my grad students. I, I think if I had an effect, it was it was secondary effect because I had throughout my career, wonderful grad students who, again, I mentioned Jin Yang Dang, who looked at national parks. I had another one who looked at conflict in national parks in terms of, you know, I talked about this idea of, of we want to be with people who have the same beliefs and social values as we do. But you can run into conflict in terms of parks, shared paths, for example. If you're hiking or just walking and a cyclist blows by you, it affects your experience. And there's a perception that they are different than us. And if you're walking along and a horse comes towards you as a hiker. So there's this kind of conflict that can happen. And I think it's one of those things where we have to step back and think, well, they're out here in the park, as are we. We have to share this this beautiful place and not get too upset. And that was something that came out of his research. And so what I'd, I'd say is, I think in terms of what I tried to do was some with the parks, national parks in particular, but also through my grad students, because they're the ones that they were doing the research and going out and doing the presentations afterwards and talking to people. Jane Hurley, who I mentioned, she was the one that really did the research and built the case for the article that we wrote on nature being a basic psychological need. She's done a ton of work with refugees, and that continues to be one of her areas. And so for her, you know, I could see it in terms of the research that she did, but then she would go back to some of the agencies and talk about their relationship, what she learned about refugees' relationship with nature. And so she's been really involved at that aspect, of course, until COVID. So I can see that with the students, I was lucky enough, the graduate students, I was lucky enough to supervise. I guess the other thing I would say, you know, you're asking me if, if there's any legacy to my career, I kind of hope so. That's one of them that I see. But the other one was I transformed a course on leisure in Canada. And you want a spiffy name, right? You want a brand when you're selling something. So I came up with life, leisure, and the pursuit of happiness. And this was a first year course. And there's about 40 students in recreation and sport admin that took it. But what I found is I ended up with about, at one time, 140 students from every faculty possible. And that was at, at its most. And it was just because people were interested in the role of leisure in their life and, and how it affects our happiness or satisfaction our sense of meaning, those sort of things. One of the things that I did is when I could, the class got so big, it, it was difficult to do this, was all those things we talked about, needs and motivations and constraints. I would have the student pick their favorite topic and then analyze how these theories did or didn't work for them. 
And so it was a, an opportunity for them both to learn the theory and then apply it to their everyday lives and try to pull something out of that. And that was always very gratifying. But I had I had a number of students who talked about, you know, hunting, for example, or going to parks or whatever. But I had a, a student read a wonderful essay because for him, it was to get off and go out into the forest and just wander in the forest. And so we talked about some of the things that we did. It was more just the peace, the tranquility, the time alone. If he said, you know, I have a really strong bonds in terms of my friends and family, but this is the time for me to get away and, and do those things and think about school and work and relationships. And he talked about, again, wandering in the woods. And I'm reading along, and this essay is about, I don't know, 20 pages, I think, at one time. And I get to a spot, and he pauses. He writes, you know, it's supposed to be wander in the woods. But you know what happens with spell check, right? If, if there's another word, it doesn't automatically change the word to what you intended. Instead of wander in the woods, he said, I went and wandered in the woods. And I thought, I wrote in the margins, because it stopped me in my track. I wandered in the woods. And I wrote in the, the margins, I said, I don't know if this is an accident. I don't know if it's intentional, but it's the most beautiful phrase I ever heard for why we go out into nature and why we were so interested in nature-based leisure. And so I'd like to think for him and some others, it was about nature and the experience you have for others. I heard everything about my favorite leisure activity is walking my dog. What else did I have? Fishing, uh, woodworking, knitting, um, sex, which were very interesting. But, you know, for a professor, it was like, oh, geez, too much information. But again, the one thing, the one thing I would say is that was the one that struck. I think I give the student an A. I had to because it was such a great paper. But there was that line. So I think if there's an effect that I had besides with my grad students and secondarily, it's because in teaching the life leisure and the pursuit of happiness class, people came to recognize how important leisure was. And there's some books that I co-authored or co-edited, and that's probably in there too. But I guess I'd like to end it with this, if we can. This is where I'd say I would like to end it is turn off the podcast, go out and wander in the woods. And that's the best advice I can give to your listeners. Oh, <laughs> I just almost want to like stop it. Just stop it right there. Gordon, this has been honestly like a delight and also super fascinating. And I've loved this conversation so much. And I've written down so many ideas and, and thoughts on who maybe I should be interviewing next and what directions I can go with this. So thank you so much for your insight and your, your experience and sharing that with us and with me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more, let's take this outside. Go to ivisonvoice.com slash podcast. Hey, listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. 
Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.